Merry Christmas, church. Just doing a few housekeeping items up here real quick. Sorry about that. Hopefully these come on. They do help. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Oh, there goes one. Very good. Well, I can tell you, I, I think I know one reason why the Lord brings the snow, and that is to help parents find a few moments of rest. <laughs> I know we don't often probably equate snow with rest, but to be honest with you, after the children do about 400 hills up and down, up and down, up and down throughout the course of the day, at nighttime, they rest really really well. You know, a number of years ago, uh, there was a movie that had come out that was rather humorous. It was about a Jamaican bobsled team. You might remember the name of the movie was Cool Runnings. And I had the picture come to mind this week, and I don't know if it made it in. I don't think it did make it in. Uh, but the picture came to mind this week that we may have on our hands the beginnings of the very first Haitian bobsled team. <laughs> in the Lenhart house. There was, there was quite a bit of fun going up and down the hill. And we actually made it through the three or four days of sledding rather casualty free until last night when, you know, it's always the youngest, the four-year-old, who's part of the six or seven-man train that takes the brunt of the train. And, uh, and so he had a nice gash above his eye. And this morning, it, it probably looks like he has a shiner. Uh, but, but he'll be all right. So a lot of busyness, but in the evenings, rest. And I wonder for you this week what it's going to look like. What it's going to look like as Friday approaches. Christmas morning is going to come at the end of a year where our country has undergone so very many changes and challenging challenges. And yet isn't it comforting to know that in a world of great change, there are some things and there is someone who never changes. There will be excitement. There will be energy. Families will gather. Gifts will be received. Gifts will be given. Packages exchanged. Many of you will probably enjoy a Christmas ham. I'm sure in many of your homes, Luke chapter 2 will be read. Jesus reigns. God is still in control. Amen? Amen? And while rest may not be the first word that comes to our minds on Christmas morning, perhaps this year, as we've been buffeted by great change, what we most need to reflect and rest on is the unchanging nature and ever-present character of our God, Emmanuel, God with us. This is a mighty and immutable truth that we can find rest in today. And today we continue our study through the book of Ruth. And this Christmas season, we have been in this book of Ruth. And today we land on what is the climatic text in the entire book. The tension has been building. And though some of that tension was resolved last week in the arrival of the Redeemer... The birth of a son is still needed to realize the fullness of that redemption. The birth of a child. It's another time when the word rest may not be the first word that comes to our mind. 
Ladies in, in our room probably would agree that the first word coming to their mind when thinking of labor and delivery is not the word rest. But think of the moments after. Think of those moments when the infant is delivered into his mother's arms or her mother's arms and placed upon her breast. And the quiet moments that follow what was the extreme adversity of labor. Rest. You know what we find, friends? Life produces hope. And things hoped for, we know, are the substance of our faith. Faith abides and motivates love. Love delivers and leads us to rest in the steadfast nature of our faithful and merciful God. We can have rest in these days. We should have rest in these days. We serve a God who will keep his promises even when hope seems lost. Before we wade into the book of Ruth today, I want to invite you to take a walk with me down a corridor of God's amazing testimony of faithfulness. Think of these words, five words that are so common this time of year. And she bore a son. How important are those words in the history of the Bible? Those words guide and direct us towards redemption, towards our true redeemer. And as we journey together through this corridor today, we're going to witness a tapestry of a God who uses life to produce faith, inspire hope, and motivate love. Our first stop is in Genesis chapter 4, and you know the context of Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have sinned, and they've been sent away from the garden. They've been cut off from its life and its abundance, yet they have been covered and provided for. But unfortunately, the legacy of their sin is taken up by their son, whose name is Cain. Remember what happens. Cain kills his brother Abel once again, destroying life and seemingly ending hope for humanity. Cain is sent away. Abel is dead. And the question is this. How now will God call forth the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Look for the words, friends. They're right there. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. And called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. A son named Seth is born, and he carries the torch of hope from generation to generation until we come to a man named Abram. And Abram finds himself in what appears to be a hopeless situation. He's in a rather difficult dilemma. The Lord has promised him a son, but his wife is very old and she's barren. Who will deliver the son of promise for Abram? 
How will God fulfill the promise that he had made to him? Genesis chapter 21. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. In his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him, Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac is born. He grows. And eventually, at age 40, he finds himself a wife named Rebekah. And yet again, we find Rebekah barren. Isaac is carrying the hope of God's covenant promises to Abraham inside of him. Once again, hope begins to fade. But watch what happens. Genesis chapter 25, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Not just one, but two children, Jacob and Esau, are born. And the torch of hope is again passed to the next generation. And we see this testimony over and over again in Genesis, bookended each time by genealogies and family trees as testimonies to God's covenant faithfulness. But then, just as we start to grow comfortable with the Lord producing fruit through these miraculous circumstances, the world grows very dark and cold. The land which was fruitful becomes stricken with famine, and that which, is, which, which was fertile is now barren. The light of the Hebrew people is hidden under a cloud of slavery in Egypt, crushed by the rule of Pharaoh. The people are oppressed. They're held in bondage. They're enslaved in the land of promise that was given to Abraham is a far off dream. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Have you ever thought in your mind how long 400 years is? Roughly 12 generations of Hebrews lived in slavery in Egypt. You were a child during the end of the Hebrew captivity in Egypt. You would have had to count back 12 great grandparents to the origins of your bondage. And as we open the book of Exodus, the predominant question is, how is God going to fulfill and keep these covenant promises that he gave to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham in the book? Where is our son of promise now? Perhaps when we need him the most. Under a decree that had been given to kill all infants delivered among the Hebrew people. A genocide. An entire generation wiped off the face of the earth. How will the love of God thwart the hatred of man? Exodus 2 delivers us a foreshadowing of the resounding Answer to that question. Look at Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. 
Now we know that this child's name would be Moses, that he would set the captives who were in Egypt free, that his leadership would eventually give way to Joshua, who would then guide the people of God to the land of promise. And as the people enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership, we want to celebrate. We want to throw up our hands and perhaps even say, there it is. It is finished. The people are there. The land God had promised has been received. The journey is complete. The people are free. But none of this was to be in those days. The people failed to completely secure the land as God had commanded. And for their failure, they pay with another 300-year span of difficulty. It's a span that can be summed up very simply in the final verse of the final chapter of the book of Judges. One we have become very familiar with in this study. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And once again, friends, all hope seems lost. But this is where today's text breaks in. And once again, we see God produce life to give us hope and direct us towards our true and real place where we can find our rest. Open your Bibles with me today to Ruth chapter 4. We're in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time of year. We thank you that you gave your son. We thank you that he came to earth, that he was born, that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, that he was laid in a humble manger. We thank you that he dwelt amongst his people. We thank you for the hope that his life produced. We thank you for the love that he led by as he walked the face of this earth. And we thank you for the sacrifice that he made. A sacrifice that allows us the opportunity to have an eternal relationship with you. And God, as we turn to these words in the book of Ruth today and look to the hope of a promised child, the birth of a son. We pray that these words might direct our hearts and minds towards the true fulfillment of your promise that was found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Open our minds and guide our hearts today. Instruct us from your word as we gather around it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life 
and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There is at least nine months of activity summed up in the opening, very powerful verse of our text today. Verse 13 is so full of energy and action. This reality is highlighted by the author's use of five action verbs. Boaz takes Ruth. Ruth becomes his wife. Boaz goes into Ruth. The Lord gives conception. Ruth bears a son. Much of the drama in the first three and a half chapters of the book culminates in just this one verse. And now to pause here and to consider this reality, a reality that we have not yet spoken of in the narrative of Ruth, but is very important because it speaks to the providence of God over her entire adult life. We remember that Ruth was a Moabite. And we remember that while she lived in Moab, she had married a man named Malin, one of Naomi's sons. And certainly she was with Malin long enough to conceive and have a child. But she never did. She had no children. Ruth came to Bethlehem in many ways in the same state as her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was empty. Either Elimelech's son, Malin, was incapable of impregnating his, further, his fertile wife, Ruth, or while they lived in Moab, or Ruth was barren and unable to produce children through Malin. In either circumstance, the providence of God is on full display in that the Lord has superintended over the womb of Ruth. Further, the text is clear. And isn't it interesting who the text gives credit to for the conception? It is not Boaz who gave conception. Rather, it was the Lord who caused Ruth to conceive. In verse 13, the time for a son to be born had come. And it foreshadowed a time that would one day more fully come. In the Old Testament, friends, we see glimpses. But as we continue through the pages of the Bible, we come to see more fully. Perhaps in Ruth 4, 13... As New Testament believers, living in light of the reality of Jesus, we hear tones of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law. A child was born to a widowed, an immigrant woman under a law that was very foreign to her. 
And it is the son, it is the son who would establish the house of Ruth. Her son is the final product needed to complete her grafting into the trunk of a tree that would one day produce the Messiah. And in a rather paradoxical statement, we might say this, that it is the son who makes the mother, not the mother who makes the son. Had Ruth not given birth to this particular son, her narrative would have never been known. Much like the first redeemer who turned down his right to marry Ruth and remained forever nameless. The history of this foreign widow and her mother-in-law would have been lost in space and time were it not for the conception of this particular child. And the life produced, friends, what is happening here is a cause for rejoicing. And look at where the women of the text direct our focus and fix our gaze. Not on the little baby, beautiful as he may have been. When a life is given, we are to celebrate the giver of life. Their words are in verse 14, and we want to say them together because it is our memory verse for the month of December. So let's... Say verse 14 together. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Ruth 4, 14. Naomi's heir gives realization to the true presence and power of her redeemer. Both capital R and Lowercase r. Women who in the opening chapter of Ruth were witnesses to Naomi's bitterness. Now they get to celebrate the faithfulness of a God who completely redeemed Naomi's fortunes. His name would be renowned in all of Israel. As testimony of his steadfast love and faithfulness was whispered and proclaimed. Amongst the people. The child that was born would play a significant role in the life of his mother and grandmother. And there are two specific roles that are unpacked as the women of the community speak to Naomi. Take a look at the beginning of verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And friends, all of those who are here, all of those who are watching with us from home today, the grandmothers, the great grandmothers, even the great great grandmothers who are participating, they can testify to the restoration that grandchildren bring. The smiles, the love, the warmth. And again, the contrast to Naomi's emptiness at the beginning of the book is once again front and center as the phrase restorer of life literally means the one who causes life to return. The child would also serve as a nourisher of Naomi's old age as she grew older. 
And as Ruth grew older, there was now one that the Lord had produced to care for them and to meet their needs. The women who had gathered now moved to highlight the beauty and completeness of Ruth's relationship to Naomi. The first half of verse 15 highlights the role of this baby. But the second half of verse 15 highlights the staying and steadfast power of true love. Take a look at the second half of verse 15. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And there's a touch of irony here at the end of verse 15. This is the only verse in the entire book of Ruth where the word love is explicitly used. And isn't it interesting that it's used in the context of Naomi and Ruth's relationship? The answer to Naomi's complaint all of the way back in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, crystallizes. We need to re-familiarize ourselves with it, don't we? Ruth chapter 1, 20, 21, Naomi comes to Bethlehem, and when she returns, she returns with a complaint. She said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Why call me delightful, or my delight, which is what her name meant, when the Almighty has made me undelightful and bitter? And the answer is found in the steadfast love that God demonstrates toward Naomi in the staying presence of Ruth and the character of Boaz and the birth of an heir to carry her delight into all of the nations. Ruth had lived up to the promise that she had made all of the way back in chapter one. Her presence And the Lord's fruit produced through her provided the consolation that later would escape Elkanah. You know the very next book after Ruth. First Samuel. And when we open the pages of first Samuel, who are we met with? Another woman who's unable to have a child. Her name was Hannah. Her husband tried to console her with these words in 1 Samuel 1. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Ruth, according to the women in her community, was more of a delight to Naomi than seven sons. And the birth of this little boy was the seal Of Naomi's delight. He was her namesake. And if we're speaking of names. What is this little one to be called? And who will be given the right to name him? You see all throughout the book of Ruth. Names have been 
very significant. They've been very important. In every place that we've encountered a name, it's carried with it great significance. And verse 16 highlights that moment that we discussed earlier, the one that follows the adversity and pains of labor, that moment of rest where now Naomi has the baby. Now think of this picture. She had come to Bethlehem, returned to her people empty. And now her arms are filled with life and hope. And just as Boaz took Ruth in verse 13 to be his wife, Naomi will now take this baby in verse 16 and draw him as her own onto her lap, even becoming as his nurse. And doesn't the image of Moses again come to mind a reminder Moses' mother, her name was Jochebed, and motivated by the love she had for her son and her desire to protect his life, she places him in a basket and lays him in the bulrushes. And who discovers him there? The daughter of Pharaoh. Yet she is unable to nurse him. And so in another rather ironic turn of events, one that highlights God's providence in Jochebed's life, she is actually paid to nurse and care for her own son, Moses. Back in our narrative in verse 16, the images of a grandmother whose name is Delight, delighting in the birth of her very first grandson, taking him together with her daughter-in-law as her own, becoming one of his guardians, a nurse. And now once we again are confronted with the presence and the voice of the community in these events. Remember, we looked at the contrast in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 3, very private events. Chapter 4, very public events. Naming a baby is another decision that you and I, if we were to sit here today, how many of you took a poll when your child was born and said to the community, what do you want me to name it? We don't do that. These are private decisions made in the context of a family. And yet, what we would consider a very private decision is not the case in this situation. They did not know it at the time, but the implications of this birth held eternal consequences for the entire Israelite community and the world. Thus the Lord invited the community to have a part in the naming of this child. This is the only place, friends, in the Bible. The only place in the entire Bible where the community gives a child his name. The name they give is significant. Look at the middle of verse 17. They named him Obed. Obed is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. And Obed became the father of Jesse, who would be the father of David, 
who became king of Israel, who would see his throne established in perpetuity, the line through which our Messiah would eventually come. And so this gigantic question that hovers over the book of Ruth, how does God win back and redeem his covenant people, is answered. He uses a foreign widow from the land of Moab. He uses the empty and the powerless. He uses the faithful and the wise. He works in the normal day-to-day circumstances of life. And he works in miraculous and unusual ways. He uses individuals and he uses communities. He works through people and he works through his laws. He spares no expense. He shepherds souls. He draws his people towards himself and towards one another. He redeems. He restores. He takes life away. Malin and Kilion and Elimelech. And he gives life. Obed. He opens wombs. He closes wombs. He remains steadfast, merciful, faithful, and kind. Even when his people lose hope and are faithless, God wins back and redeems his covenant people according to his good and perfect nature. By his love and compassion, he bears with us with great patience. His kindness guides us towards repentance. But we don't stop here in Ruth 14, do we? Or Ruth 4. The story doesn't end here. And aren't we thankful? There are a few more stops in this corridor of God's faithfulness. Are there not? Ruth turns over to Samuel where Hannah is found, as we already mentioned, barren and grieved. But watch what happens in 1 Samuel 1 verse 20. In due time, Hannah conceived and what? Bore a son. She called him Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And from generation to generation, the fulfillment of God's great promise of the people's redemption continued. The message delivered to the prophet Isaiah gave hope that though captivity and defeat defined many generations of Israelites, there was still hope and promise for us to hold on to. And once again, the promise would be realized in the birth of a son. Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 continues the theme of the prophet's message. And this time, it wouldn't be the community, but the Lord himself who would give the child a powerful name. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then watch What the Lord tells the prophet Isaiah later in the book, all the way in Isaiah chapter 53, that his Messiah would accomplish. 
Who has believed? What has he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The life of Jesus on earth does not sound like it was a life that was full of rest. He lived a life of affliction, of torment, of pain, and of consequence, so that one day his sheep might find their rest in him. And so the world waited, the people waited. Creation waited, rather, as Paul describes it so eloquently in the book of Romans, all creation groaned in the pains of childbirth until now. And isn't, friends, that until now where we find our hope and where we find our rest? When we realize its truth as expressed in the birth of Jesus, 
our Messiah. Think of the New Testament, how it opens up. The hopelessness of 400 years of silence between the Testaments. That laid like a heavy blanket over the people of Israel. They longed for their coming son of promise. And as we break open the New Testament and burst forth into Luke chapter 2, we finally come face to face with the hopes of all our years. The light of the world. The baby in a manger. Once again, God uses life. But this time, friends, it's his life to produce hope, to inspire faith, to motivate love amongst his people. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. To her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? Here's what strikes me regarding God's faithfulness. As we go all the way back to the book of Genesis and work our way through the entire Bible and we couple that together with the history and the testimony of our lives, we come to recognize that we have a God who is always faithful. He always comes through. And though sometimes he comes through in miraculous and extraordinary ways, most of the time... We witness him working through the day-to-day, ordinary lives of regular, everyday people, just like you and me. People who are walking by faith, motivated by love, hoping on God. And I might ask us on this Sunday before Christmas, what are we hoping in? And what are we hoping for this Christmas season Where will we turn to find our rest? The world would like us to place our hope in a lot of different places. Perhaps a politician. Maybe some kind of medical technology. Maybe a mask. Maybe a certain or specific pastor, author, theologian. Maybe they could do the trick. Maybe our family, or wealth, or career success, or education. And in this world, friends, we know that all of these places are both inefficient and insufficient to hold our eternal hope or motivate saving faith, leading us towards true and real rest. The Bible gives us one clear and resounding person in whom we are to aim all our hopes. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
Friends, we can place our hope in God with great confidence because as we look back down the corridor of his faithfulness, we see a hallway adorned with the testimony of a God who is always faithful, whose love never fails, a God who is not only for his people, but dwells with his people. And on Friday morning, December 25th, my prayer is that together we will celebrate Emmanuel. God with us. Christ the Savior is born. Let us rejoice and be glad. Team, would you come? Father, again, we thank you for your word this morning. How the testimony of a child born all the way back in the book of Ruth. In times that often escape our minds. Father, it points us to the reality of the son that was born In Luke chapter 2, the one that you gave, Jesus, your only son, who is God, who died for us, who bore our transgressions. Thank you for that promise. Direct our hearts and minds to find our hope, our joy, our satisfaction, and our motivations in his example, in his life. It's in his name, Jesus's, that we pray. Amen.